This is Biosphere, a Royal Society of Biology podcast that covers the broad field of the life sciences by interviewing bioscience researchers and discussing interesting biological discoveries and science policy. Welcome back to Biosphere. Thanks for tuning in. My name is Freya and I'm your host. The topic for our second episode will be plant health. You may think, plant health? Why should I care? Well, it's actually a very important issue. Healthy plants are a critical resource, the natural protector supporting life on Earth. Plants are the source of the air we breathe and most of the food we eat. Yet we often do not pay enough attention to keeping them healthy. But today we will be examining vital plant health research and the necessity of public awareness. And Kieran, one of our senior science policy officers, will be helping me explore this. Thank you for getting involved. No worries. So Kieran, tell me what you do at RSB and what did you study before you joined? So I'm part of the science policy team at the RSB and I lead on our work covering plant science and the environment. So that's issues such as biosecurity, plant health and diseases, any environmental legislation the government's putting through or things like COP. Before I joined the RSB, I did my MRes looking at metal tolerance proteins in plants. So how we can maybe grow plants in heavy metal conditions and what enables that to happen. I then spent two years at Forest Research looking at Phytophthora remorum, which is a pathogen affecting larch trees. And then two years at Kew Gardens, where I was looking at genome sequencing different fungal species. And then I came here. I think it's safe to say that you love plants. Definitely. <laughs> well... Why don't you kick off this week's episode with something that you read recently, whether it was a piece of research or a news story? Yeah, so I recently read a paper which was also picked up by The Guardian, which assessed the cost of invasive non-native species to Britain, whether those costs be to agriculture, infrastructure, etc. They calculated the annual cost to the UK economy from these is over £4 billion. So predominantly these affected the agriculture and forestry sectors, but also things like construction, transport and the conservation sector as well. I mean, that's a that's a huge amount. Um, what sort of organisms are we talking about here? So the study obviously encompassed a huge range of organisms, not all of which are plants or not all of which directly affect plants. But I think it's important to note the two highest impactful species by quite some margin were ash dieback, which is a fungus affecting ash trees, which cost over £883 million annually. And then also Japanese knotweed, which is an invasive plant species, which can cause whole sorts of problems. And that costs £246 million annually. So huge, huge figures we're talking about. Yeah, that sounds like it's a huge problem if it's costing us that much. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, there's also things like Phytophthora remorum, as mentioned previously, and box tree moth, giant hogweed, all sorts of things. And I think it's probably important to know that while they don't directly impact human health themselves, they can have significant indirect consequences. So these plant pest and diseases lead to biodiversity loss and ecosystem collapse, which can destroy a whole swathe of a landscape here in the UK. And even from the commercial side, the agricultural side, if you get something that targets a specific crop, wipes it all out, that creates issues of food security, loss of livelihood, things like that. So although they're not affecting our health directly, you know, the consequences can be just as severe. Yeah, I definitely remember ash dieback when it was a massive issue and it did sweep throughout the entire country. So are these invasive species becoming more frequent? So, I mean, obviously, we've got a few things that we've had for a more significant period of time. So the study calculated the impact of things like rabbits and non-native deer species, which we've had for thousands of years. But as you say, ash dieback, that was only discovered in this country 11 years ago, and is set to wipe out 
80% of the ash trees we have, which is the second most common tree in the UK. So, you know, it's going to have a massive impact. Recent studies as well show that we're going to get about 10 to 12 new non-native invasive species each year. So it just shows that these things are going to be constantly coming. And while they're not all going to have a significant effect as that, there's every chance we could get exposed to something that could be just as devastating, if not more. And things like climate change and increased commercialization, transport, etc., the risk is only going to get more and more. So I think it's important to both be aware and also make sure we've got the infrastructure in place to check what plants are coming in and make sure we've got the right protocols and appropriately trained people in that industry to keep us safe from future plant pandemics and stuff like that. Yeah. So biosecurity is super important when it comes to this sort of stuff. Yeah, crucially, I'd say. I mean, I think it's sort of a thing people don't think about, maybe more with COVID, people have become more aware, but people tend to think of plants as just plants really you know it's not plant blindness but it's the sort of thing that you know a plant can't be that devastating but the consequences can be even economically as we say millions and millions of pounds of damage yeah it's definitely a serious issue i'm gonna move on to my story which is slightly lighter topic but i found some very interesting research that recently looked at microbiomes and their role in protecting plants which could actually make agricultural practices more sustainable really yeah, so plants and animals and humans are all home to numerous microorganisms such as bacteria and fungi. I think that's a pretty well-known fact, but these form complex communities that have a profound impact on the health of their host. One very well-known example is the fungal communities that are associated with plant roots, and they impact plant growth by influencing the flow of nutrients and water between plants and fungi. However, the rules that determine how these communities form and what mechanisms shape their makeup were yet to be discovered. That is until a team of researchers from ETH Zurich in Switzerland has identified an organising principle for the bacteria that live on the leaves of the model plant called Thalecress. So how would these interactions between microbes influence the microbiome itself? So they developed a set of models that use the nutrient preferences and metabolic abilities. So that's biochemical reactions like respiration and digestion. They used these preferences and abilities of individual bacterial strains to predict how these leaf surface microbes compete or cooperate with each other, thereby helping us better understand the nature of the resulting microbiome. In a competitive environment, food niches, so that's the space that an organism occupies, could lead to stable coexistence and collaboration with the microbes interacting for mutual advantage by exchanging resources. So how would these interactions between microbes influence the microbiome itself? Well, that's exactly what they asked. So they wanted to know if the metabolic capabilities of different bacteria would help us understand how the leaf microbiome takes shape. The researchers began by testing the ability of more than 200 representative strains of bacteria from thalecrest leaves to grow using 45 different carbon sources. Using these carbon profiles, they determined that there was extensive overlap between the strains' food niches, which meant that there was fierce competition. But they also found that there were cooperative interactions that can be traced back to the exchange of organic acids and amino acids. By understanding these interactions and how they affect the microbiome, could that be used for things like agriculture or something like that? Yeah, so the beauty about this research is that the models can work in reverse. This means that they can be used to identify mechanisms that trigger certain interaction patterns. Currently, seed companies and agricultural chemical producers use a process of trial and error to search for microbes that sustainably support crop protection. 
These predictive models can play a key role in making that process more streamlined with a number of methods such as supplementing unbalanced communities with the right microbe, removing certain species of microbes, or even treating diseases with combinations of bacteria with special functions. This sort of stuff sounds like it would be really crucial in developing new sort of non-herbicidal methods to influence agriculture, something that we really do need with all the effects we know these have on pollinators and things like that. Yeah, it's going to be really important and it's a great step to having this sustainability in agriculture. And who knew that a bacterial biome would be one of the keys to making agriculture sustainable? On that note, let's bring on our special guest, We are joined today by one of RSB's fellows, Professor Nick Tolbert, Executive Director and Group Leader at the Sainsbury Laboratory. Nick is interested in understanding how fungi are able to cause disease in plants, specifically one of the world's most devastating diseases called rice blast. Thank you for coming on to Biosphere. Thanks very much. Thanks for inviting me. Why don't we start with you telling us a little bit about your research and what blast disease is? So rice blast disease is one of the most devastating diseases of cultivated rice. So it affects rice wherever it's grown, all, all across the world, and each year it destroys enough rice to feed about 60 million people. So considering that rice supplies about 23% of the world's calories and about 50% of the world depend on it as a staple food, it's really serious. So wherever you get blast disease outbreaks, it can, it can have really significant consequences. So it's, it's of social and humanitarian importance too. So the disease is caused by a fungus, Magnaporpha rhizae, it's a filamentous fungus. So fungi are those organisms that produce strand-like cells called hyphae, they're very good at invading things, so they're obviously familiar to, to many people because they are able to rot the food that we fail to eat, that we leave in our fridges, and people are used to seeing mushrooms and toadstools, so they're used to seeing fungi. But they're also pretty much the most important group of plant pathogens, and this fungus is able to find its way into rice plants. It, it has a very a unique way of entering rice plants, which I can tell you about. But once it's inside a rice plant, then it can grow very, very quickly through living plant tissue, and it can cause disease within three or four days of actually invading a, a rice plant. So, uh, so what are we trying to do? We're trying to understand how does the fungus gain entry to a rice plant? And then once it's inside a rice plant, then uh, how is it able to, uh, to cause the disease symptoms that, uh, that we see? That research, um, did that come off the back of looking into this enzyme in question for a biofuel use? So the work that you're referring to is some uh, collaborative work that we've done with a scientist at the University of California in Berkeley called Michael Marletta. He's very interested in biofuels, so he's been very interested in how can we identify enzymes that break down plant cell walls? And if we can, can you then harness those for biotechnology applications to produce ethanol and other biofuels at much higher efficiency from breaking down plant tissue? So, so that's the biofuel connection. He's a, a world-class biochemist who's got wonderful knowledge of enzyme structure and function. And what he was able to do was show that there's a really quite amazing enzyme that's involved in the breakdown of polysaccharides in the, in the plant cell wall. 
And what we were able to do working with them is to show how that works within the context of the biology of the organism. My research is trying to understand from the perspective of controlling the disease, how does the fungus gain entry to rice plants? And it has an amazing mechanism to do that. So it produces special cells called apressoria, which are pressure cells. So these are pressurized cells that are able to exert a physical force against the rice leaf and then puncture the way through the cuticle. And the pressure is enormous. So the pressure inside an apressorium is 8 megapascals, which is 80 atmospheres of pressure. So that's 40 times higher than a car tire. So that's very, very high pressure, probably the highest pressure in a living cell. And the reason we don't know that for sure is because it's almost impossible to measure because the pressure is just so high. That enables the fungus to puncture the leaf surface and gain entry to the underlying tissue. So it sends a little rigid uh, penetration hypha through the um, the, the tough cell wall of a plant and in, in, into the plant tissue. The work we did with Michael has shown that in addition to using physical force, the fungus is also very good at secreting enzymes which help it do that process. So it helps it break down plant cell walls. And one of them we characterized and showed that it had a really important role to play in the plant disease process. So we're very interested in those mechanisms. So how does the fungus produce these amazing cells, these pressure cells, which are called apressoria, and how do they work? How is a living cell able to generate such massive pressure and then how is it able to generate physical force and uh, puncture the rice leaf? Yeah, I mean, you kind of don't expect something so small to have that amount of power to puncture a leaf like that. Absolutely. Your research is looking at how to tackle that problem. So are you looking at fungicides? And if a fungicide is created that tackles this, is it going to be any different from just your general herbicide and fungicide approaches? Or do you think that these approaches need to be reduced? Well, the, the short answer is yes, they need to be reduced. In fact, they really need to be eliminated. You know, the planet's facing a climate emergency and we can't have fossil fuel driven agricultural processes anymore. And we have to do all we can to get off the chemical treadmill and not use chemicals in controlling diseases. Now, of course, having said that, that's extraordinarily hard to do. You know, we still control most plant diseases across the world using fungicides. So I suppose there are two things that we need to think about. So if we can find out more about the biology of the fungus, then potentially we can develop better chemicals which are able to be used at very, very low doses and are very specific and target the organism in question and therefore have a much lower environmental impact and actually are, are much more sustainable in the amount that it used. So that's one area that can be investigated. But increasingly, my group, what we're trying to do is develop genetic technologies to protect against blast. So we're trying to work on understanding how the plant's immune system works and then whether we can utilize those major resistance genes against blast in better combinations to uh, to protect against disease. And you can do that using genetic manipulation. You can also do that using gene editing approaches, and you can even do it through conventional breeding. So there are a number of different ways of doing it. And in many ways, it's not the technology that's important. The most important thing is the outcome is, can we produce durably resistant rice varieties where we don't have to spray anything on them that they can resist the pathogen directly? That's, that's our really big aim. That's what we'd like to do. And that indeed is really the aim of the Sainsbury Lab more generally, that what we're trying to do in this institution is try and find alternative means to control diseases which are really, truly sustainable and which we can really use as an important component in our response to the climate emergency. The UK is obviously passing new laws regarding its use of genetic technologies. Do you see it as a barrier that this regulation might be tighter in other countries that might inhibit 
sort of the planting of these plants with better gene resistance for these diseases? Or how do you see that changing? Yeah, well, I think that the new legislation, the, the precision editing bill, I think is very welcome because it, it just means that we have the ability now to explore gene editing as a means of looking at plant biology more generally, looking at trait development. And it's a really an accelerated way of doing plant breeding and to do it in a much more precise way. The interesting thing there from a safety perspective is, of course, that we know precisely the changes we're making, whereas with conventional plant breeding, we really don't. We're moving genes, but we're moving a lot of material with them, a lot of linked genetic material with them, which we don't know about. So I, I definitely welcome the fact that that legislation has come through. But I think public awareness and acceptance of genetic technologies is changing across the world anyway, and I think it is changing in the European Union too. I think we recognize the fact that, you know, the way that we actually managed to finally cope with the pandemic was through the use of genetic technologies. We used genetic engineering to produce those vaccines that were able to immunize most of the world against COVID-19. So as a consequence of that, I think people do realize that we're really talking about the same technologies and they are extremely effective and very precise in what they do. And of course, what we need to do is make sure that we build public assurance and public acceptance. But I'm less concerned, again, about the technologies than what we're trying to do. What we're trying to do is produce resistant rice and for other diseases of wheat and barley and, uh, and other food crops where we don't have to spray any fungicides anymore, which would be remarkable. You know, we're spraying in the UK on potatoes. We're spraying 10, 15 times a year to protect against potato blight. All of those chemicals are fossil fuel derived. They all have an environmental impact, however regulated that industry is. Wouldn't It'd be great if we could not do that anymore. We could look forward to a future where we didn't have any chemical interventions in crop control. That would be fantastic. And it would make a massive contribution to, to climate change. Yeah, I think that would be the hope of the future to try and have a world where we don't have to use herbicides and fungicides at all. Going back to blast disease, it obviously affects wheat and other species. So what is the next step with your research? Do you think it could spread to other plants with this particular disease? So the blast fungus can affect about 50 different species of grass, most of which are forage grasses, but occasionally it undergoes a host jump from one to another. And what happened with wheat blast was that there were strains of the fungus which were able to grow on perennial ryegrass. And due to a relatively small number of genetic changes, they were able to jump onto wheat. And that, that happened in Brazil in 1985. And wheat blast was originally constrained to South America, but because of the forces of globalization, increased trade, the disease spread into Bangladesh in 2016 and then spread again into Africa in 2020. So wheat blast is a real worry because it's a very, very serious disease and it's really quite devastating. So I visited Bangladesh in 2019 and I saw firsthand the devastation caused by wheat blast there. And it really was quite a sobering experience. I mean, it was real devastation. There were tens of thousands of hectares destroyed. About 16% of the wheat production was destroyed and the disease has carried on spreading throughout South Asia. So yes, it's a serious concern. What can we do to try and combat it? Well, a lot of it comes from trying to identify potential sources of resistance in wheat varieties and then make sure that they can be bred into the commercially grown uh, wheat varieties that there are. The problem with that is there are very few of those identified genes. So what we're doing is now looking at, can we identify genes within rice, within barley, within other grasses, which actually would protect wheat against wheat blast? And then can they then be transferred? And again, that would be using genetic modification to actually move those and show that they actually are able to work effectively in wheat. And also to screen more widely against very large 
collections of wheat varieties, which we have, and those are being screened, again, to identify novel sources of resistance. And then if those can be combined, we can develop some durably resistant wheat varieties, we hope. So that, that's what we're trying to do. And in terms of your question about whether it could spread to other hosts, well, presumably, yes, it could. We know that Magnaporta will infect barley. And at the moment, the reason it doesn't do that in the wild is because of climatic conditions are not appropriate for that. But again, climate change could make conditions in temperate regions more conducive to rice blast, which is really a subtropical disease. So as temperatures increase, we might find rice blast further north in the northern hemisphere and further south in the southern hemisphere as it adapts to those changing climatic conditions. So we have to be very careful. We have to do lots of disease surveillance, do all we can to work out where the pathogen is spreading to, and then do as much preemptive breeding as we can and use the technologies that are available. In countries where we are unable to use the GM method, then we will do that by using conventional breeding. In other countries around the world, of which there are many of those, where we can develop GM crops, then we can do it far quicker and in a more precise way using those other techniques. But those are the aims. Are the mechanics of infection across different Magnaporta species, are they exactly the same or virtually exactly the same? And therefore, can your research sort of be applicable across that? They can. They are virtually the same. And uh, although the overall sort of tensile strength, if you like, of different leaves of different cereals are different, so there may well be even different pressures exerted, although we haven't investigated that in great detail. But, but I think a lot of things we discover in rice blast are definitely translatable. So many of the genetic regulators of apressorian development, the means by which these infection cells, their development's controlled, those are definitely widely applicable and not just in rice blast actually that we have been involved in characterizing a regulator of pressure cell development and actually that's been looked at in now about 30 different species of plant pathogen and in every case it affects virulence so it seems that there are some very conserved pathways that control virulence and, and of course that is a very very good potential target for disease intervention and again that could be by um, a safer and more effective chemical but it could also be through genetic intervention. So you could use RNA interference, gene silencing, for example, to target that directly. So there are a number of different ways in which these processes could work. Could you use that to sort of preemptively grow crops that might be the next source for the fungus rather than treat directly? Yeah, I mean, and of course, that would be a wonderful thing to be able to do if we could actually be more proactive and preemptive in our approaches to plant disease, that would be much better. We tend to be very responsive. You see a disease outbreak and then try and spray against it. And that, of course, is problematic and much less effective. And I think that we also know that there's an awful lot of fungicide spraying going on in order to, to protect against disease that may actually not appear later on in the growth cycles. So I think we need better early warning systems, diagnostic systems, but we also need some preemptive strategies of which that could be one. Gene silencing strategies, strategies such as different types of disease resistance being deployed, all of those things would definitely help. Yes. So going back to Michael Marletta setting out to look at biofuels and then this snowballing into something else. Do you think interdisciplinary collaboration is really important with this sort of work? Yes, I think that interdisciplinary research is vitally important. And many big scientific discoveries are serendipitous. They come out of a chance experiment. And I think that many of the big discoveries happen at those sort of interfaces between two disciplines. And I think that happens a lot, you know, that uh, we're also working with a wonderful mechanobiologist who's helping us understand how pressure's generated. And he's trained as a physicist and then has worked as a material scientist too. He's a, a person called Joris uh, Sprackel at the Wageningen University. And his insights, again, are completely different. And that's enabled us to develop some advanced 
imaging techniques to actually look at membrane tension and understand much more about the mechanisms by which pressure is generated in cells. So yeah, you just get fascinating new insights. And I, and I love that. You know, I've worked with mathematicians, with chemists. We've even worked with social scientists as well, providing insight into human behavior. There's no point in deploying novel forms of disease resistance if you haven't actually got your grower community and consumer community actually accepting the type of things that you're doing. So we've worked extensively actually with people working in those areas too. So yeah, I, I love uh, interdisciplinary research. I think it's, it's absolutely vital. Yeah. And I guess that kind of goes into the fact that science is not necessarily always linear. It doesn't start off with a, a research idea and then you get the answer to your question. So many things feature into that. And I think there's a stereotype thinking that science is super straightforward and it's quite black and white. And it's not because there are so many shades of different disciplines that come into it and yes. can actually help find the answers that you're looking for. Yes, no, that, that's uh, that's absolutely right. I think that one of the fascinating things about science is that the fact that if you follow your curiosity and you can have a wonderful hypothesis, a wonderful idea about how something works until it gets um, slain by an experiment. <laughs> <laughs> so, you, so you do an experiment and you find out, no, no, you know, I was completely wrong. And that's in some ways you get these revelatory moments where you realize, no, you're completely wrong. But in finding out you're wrong with a well-designed experiment, you can learn something which is much more profound sometimes. So I really love the experimental approach about doing science. You formulate a hypothesis, test it, and then let the uh, let the organism reveal its biology and tell you whether you're right or wrong. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> which is why I think science has to be curiosity driven more than anything. So you can test those ideas and you can have those experiments where you test something which is a little bit off the wall. And uh, yeah, they're, they're always they're always worth doing. I think imagination is very much the key to doing research and studying lots of different faculties. I mean, Einstein mentioned that. Yeah, I think it is. And I think you're right about the fact that I think a lot of people outside of science do tend to think that research is something where you plug in some data and get out an answer. And it's very sort of transactional, really, and you find out the result. And they don't realize that science is incredibly creative. There's a big creative process in it and a huge amount of serendipity. But actually, just by going through that process of testing an idea and then proving whether it's right or wrong, you can learn an, an awful lot. And of course, it's very akin to the way that we play as children and the way we learn things at a very young age. We're effectively going through the scientific method when we do that. You learn how to how to design an experiment, what's a fair test and so on. So I, I think there's a lot to be said for science as play, got to play a bit. Just like to go back to your point earlier, Nick, about how you said disease treatment cross kingdoms is often reactive rather than proactive. Do you think, particularly regarding plant pathology and plant health, do we take the threat of plant pandemics seriously enough, both on the citizen science level, but also on the governmental organizational level as well? And what's key to sort of tackling those issues? I think we haven't taken them seriously, and we still don't really take them as seriously as human health. And I can see to an extent that's understandable, but I think we sometimes, we have very short memories. You know, we don't realize that there was a famine in 1845 on these islands, the potato famine, and there were other really serious plant disease epidemics, coffee rust and so on, which absolutely decimated the Sri Lankan coffee industry at the time and led to us uh, adopting tea drinking. I mean, all of these things are a part of our history. So plant disease outbreaks have historically been really, really important. And of course, on a more localized basis, there were definitely famines associated with crop losses throughout human history. 
the problem, of course, now is that because of globalization and because of the interconnectedness of the world, we could actually face a pandemic very quickly. And we do have vast areas of monoculture. And if they are susceptible to a disease, we may not be able to operate quickly enough through even chemical interventions to do anything about it. So we could be faced with something which is really very, very serious. I think wheat blast is definitely in that category as one that could become very serious. The stem rusts are also very serious and potato blight is an ever-present uh, problem caused by a pneumomycete pathogen. So yeah, we don't take them as seriously. There could be a plant pandemic and we would have to respond very quickly because it could really affect global food security. So it's something we should try to be more prepared for. And actually the lessons we can learn are the ones from the pandemic we've just all been through, that we need better genomic surveillance. We need to make sure we know where things are in the world. To an extent, I think we should just be anticipating that if there is a disease in the same climatic conditions anywhere in the world, on the same general attitudes as the UK, then I think we should assume that it will come here at some point. We're not going to be able to keep it out, it will come. And therefore we'd be better actually preparing for that eventuality and trying to breed resistance into crops that could be affected by it and be a bit more preemptive. We don't tend to do that. We tend to be very reactive in plant pathology. There hasn't been a strong open science or collaborative culture in plant pathology. There is now increasingly, which is a wonderful thing, but there hasn't been historically. So communities have been much more disjointed, much less well connected than they were in, for example, in human virology that led to the really good things that came out of the response to COVID was that extent of international cooperation and collaboration, the way that everyone shared information. And that actually, of course, led to the vaccine development being very, very rapid because of the international collaboration and just knowledge that grew pretty much exponentially about SARS-CoV-2. We really need to learn from that so we have a, a greater state of preparedness for plant pandemics. Obviously, there's always going to be a chance of pathogens coming over into the UK through wind dispersal from across the channel. But how much of it is down to kind of that public communication side and advertising to people what they can do themselves? Or people have this idea that plant pathology, there's nothing I can do, that's for the experts. But is there a good portion of it that can be good public practice in sort of keeping that risk down? I think the public should be very vigilant on all of these things. A lot of plant diseases come into the UK through garden centres and through nurseries. We've seen that with ash dieback and we've seen that previously with many of the phytophthora diseases which have spread into our forests actually came in through ornamental plants. So I think that the public can definitely be vigilant. They can ask questions about the way in which their garden centre actually operates and deals with phytosanitary situations. They can avoid buying anything that even looks slightly diseased. They must ensure they're buying plants that look absolutely healthy. They should definitely ask those questions. And I think also it's insisting that the UK takes plant health seriously and supports the actions of our government departments, DEFRA, in, in actually making sure that we are very vigilant about plant health. So I think those things are important. Citizen science played an enormously important role in monitoring where ash dieback was. I think that we learned an awful lot more by engaging the general public about how far ash dieback had spread and then using that to guide the interventions that would prevent it. So yeah, it's very, very important. So I think the public take these things actually very seriously and they care an awful lot about their natural environment. You know, they do care a lot about the woodlands in the UK and, and I think there are people who are very, very upset about what's happening with, with ash populations and of course in prior generation what happened to our elm trees through Dutch elm disease. So we've seen this a number of times and there are a number of potential other disease and pest threats that can come into the UK. 
processionary moth, the fall armyworm and so on, that there are many potential threats to food and non-food crops that can come in. So the public being vigilant about those and reporting those where they can, and there are there are very easy ways on the web where you can actually report sightings of particular plant diseases through the death report. I think those are all really important. I suppose it's also important, though, uh, to make people aware of things like rice blast, because there is that kind of idea of out of sight, out of mind. People don't view these things as immediate problems, or maybe we don't from the UK. I guess it is also an element of making people aware of what these global threats are. Yes, I, I mean, I think there are many people who, who sometimes don't connect plants so clearly with the food that we eat. And knowing that the rice that we sort of take for granted with our takeaway curries and Chinese meals is almost all imported from all around the world. And the plants from which it came can get sick. And if they get sick, there will be no more rice. So actually making those connections is important. We've taken food for granted for a long time. I think the current spike in food prices post-pandemic and associated with the Ukraine conflict have, I think, made people think a little bit more about food. I think up until then, global food security was thought to be a problem for others and not us. It wasn't something that would ever affect the UK. But I think people are realising things aren't quite so certain. You know, if you get a major disruption in the supply of a staple like wheat, then it really can affect people. And that's what would happen with a serious plant disease. The first sort of signs of that would be shortages and enormous price rises, and then things would, could become a lot more serious. So a major pandemic on wheat or rice would have you know, devastating consequences. And we're already seeing again in the Horn of Africa, there's renewed evidence of famine spreading into those regions, which you can begin to trace that back again to the relative shortages associated with staples like wheat and harvest failures locally. So yeah, it's, it's an ever-present threat. But I think actually a lot of people in the UK realise that we have a responsibility to global food security. One of the things that this country is very good at is working in understanding plant diseases. Many elements of the plant immune system were discovered in the UK, a lot of them here in the Sainsbury Laboratory by some of my colleagues. We're world leaders in this area in the UK, really. You know, we, we do actually have very advanced knowledge of the way in which plant diseases operate, the way in which the plant immune system can be activated and how to deploy resistance against a whole host of different diseases across the world. All of the project leaders here at the Sainsbury Laboratory have got projects that operate in low and middle income countries. I'm running large field trials in Kenya on rice blast at the moment and we've operated those in Tanzania, Burkina Faso across both West and East Africa and we also have ongoing collaborations. One of my colleagues works extensively in Bangladesh on wheat blast. We have programs on potato blight also in sub-Saharan Africa. So everyone here at the lab is involved in work in the developing world in terms of trying to combat plant disease. And all that's being done on a non-commercial, public good basis. The research might not be happening in that country in particular, but it will reap the rewards both on a humanitarian and economic scale if there is the breakthrough on how we can better protect and treat crops from these diseases. Absolutely. And the other thing I think with all these projects is there's a lot of local capacity building. To take Kenya as an example, there are some fantastic institutes. Calro and Becca Ilri in Nairobi are actually fantastic institutions with really, really well-trained scientists. And we do a lot of our trial data there with them. We have a Magnaportha repository of fungal isolates, which is in Nairobi. And we, we have a mirror copy of it here. So we work in collaboration to try and make sure we've got really effective disease surveillance going on in, in those countries. And a lot of that is a legacy of ongoing collaboration and engagement. Many of those students were originally trained here. Now our professors and project leaders working in those countries with, with whom we're collaborating. The UK generally, and if you look across all of our institutes, the John Innes Centre, Erlen Quadrum, the Rothamsted Research, 
the James Hutton in Scotland, they're all actually well connected with low and middle income countries to try and translate these technologies. Yeah, I think it is really important. I think just plant health in general is such an important issue and we should be talking about it more. Well, thank you so much for speaking to us today. It was a pleasure to talk with you about how important all of this is. And I definitely think that we've shed a light on the fact that the public need to be more aware of what they can do to reduce spread of plant pathogens and whether that's choosing specific garden centres or writing to your MP to talk about these issues, then that's the best way to kind of combat this problem. But thank you. Absolutely. No, I'm very, very happy to talk to you and uh, it's been great fun. So thank you very much. Kieran. Freya. Do you know what it's time for? What is it time for? Our silver lining of the week. If you joined us for our last episode, you'll know that we take a moment to talk about a news story or research study that we think is really positive or wholesome, whether that's ways to mitigate climate change, scientific success stories, or individual acts to instigate meaningful change. This week, we're going to talk about the benefits of green spaces, which I think is pretty appropriate as we've talked about plants this week. Yes, urban green spaces are known to help counter heat, boost biodiversity and increase air quality. But did you know that it can also make you younger? Yeah, so the study in question found that people whose homes were surrounded by 30% green cover within a five kilometre radius were on average two and a half years younger biologically compared to those whose homes were surrounded by 20% green cover. This just shows how beneficial exploring the great outdoors can be. But another benefit is that green spaces can improve your mental health. Research in Finland showed that dropping into a park or another urban green space three or four times a week can cut people's chances of taking medication for anxiety or depression by up to a third. That just demonstrates how amazing green spaces are. I mean, who doesn't like a park? Do you have a favourite green space that you like to visit, Kieran? Well, living in southwest London, I do like to go up to Wimbledon Common on occasion. A nice big green space really feels like you're getting lost in it and escaping from the hustle and bustle of London London, centre. Yeah, London city life. (laughs) Yeah, I I mean, I live in Battersea at the moment, so I've got Battersea Park, which is lovely. But I think also Hampstead Heath, that's just a great green space to go. If any of our listeners are looking to visit London and to go to a green space, then those are definitely good places to visit. That's it this week from me and Kieran. A big thank you to Nick for speaking with us about Rice Blast. And thanks, Kieran, for helping out. You're welcome. And thanks for having me on. I just want to take the opportunity to say the RSB are doing a lot of work in the area of plant health. Through our partnership with DEFRA, we organise regular events, our plant health undergraduate studentship schemes, which give students a chance to work in a plant health research project for a few weeks over the summer. And we also run the Plant Health Professional Register as well. Yes. Yeah, so if you're interested, you can go to our Plant Health Activity page on our website. I'll put the link in the description for anyone who would like to read more about these schemes. Join us for our next episode where we'll discuss climate change technologies and how rewilding can be the solution for the globe's net zero plans. Until next time. <laughs> <laughs>